we, we take for granted, right, like that we can have a conversation, that we can have an argument, that we can have a reasonable discussion, that we can use reason and logic to make arguments for various conclusions. But the very ability to do those things is already so significant. Like how in the world do we exist in a reality where arguments can exist? So some of the most fundamental questions that need to be answered, things like, what does it mean to be a human? What is a person? Where did we come from? What is the purpose of our life? These sort of things are questions that maybe we don't spend enough time talking through and thinking about because maybe they seem a little bit abstract or out there, maybe not as necessary. However, I think that when you see this conversation that we're about to have and realize the theological and practical implications of this topic. It is something that we all should spend a little bit more time thinking through. So as we're going to talk about in this conversation, this conversation of consciousness and the soul, it relates to things like your feelings, your thoughts, your sight, your will. Do you have free will? How do you choose things? Your value as a person, your body and yourself. And then there's obviously worldview implications of how do we make sense? of thinking rational people and where we came from. And so that's going to be the conversation that we're going to have today. It's going to be a fun one, hopefully really interesting to you as well as very practical. And it's based off of this book, Who Are You Really? A Philosopher's Inquiry to the Nature and Origin of Person. So joining me is the author, Joshua Rasmussen, who is a professor, associate professor of philosophy at Azusa Pacific University. Joshua, thank you so much for coming on the show and having this conversation with me. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. I'm just, as I was saying before the show, this is like one of my favorite things to do. So thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So excited for this. And as I just tried to prep everyone, this is more important than we sometimes often think. So I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on that as well of why is this idea of consciousness, the nature of consciousness, uh, something that we as Christians should be thinking about? So I don't think I can overemphasize how important this topic is. I mean, like literally everything hangs on the nature of you, the nature of consciousness. This this topic of consciousness is at the center of all the big questions that people in our cult in our culture are asking, that we ourselves ask, that any human being asks. These are questions about our future. You know, on certain theories of you and the nature of you, um, you go away when your brain deteriorates and you're gone. And other theories, you continue to exist. And in, in, in there are different theories about what form you continue to exist in. This is, this is about your future. It has to do with your origin. Where did you come from? How could you have been brought into existence? In order to even think about that, we got to think about the nature of you. Uh, like, like every single question people like, does God exist is connected to this because there's an argument for the existence of God from the existence of your own self. If we start thinking about what a self is and how a self could actually exist in principle, there's a a pointer there from your existence, the existence of God. So yeah, Ryan, I don't think I can overemphasize just how significant this question is. This is why I'm passionate about the topics, why I wrote the book. It's because it's like every big question I think that people raise uh, ultimately in one way or the other points to the question of the nature and the origin of conscious beings, of yourself. 
Now, yeah, and absolutely. And so when it comes to kind of this understanding of like, uh, okay, it's important, it kind of answers these big questions. Uh, a lot of what I do here is, is, is focus, as I told you earlier, on cultural engagement, trying to train Christians to engage the culture. And so maybe some kind of high level stuff, and we're going to get into other examples as we talk, but kind of on, on the uh, uh, from the beginning. How does this understanding of consciousness and thinking about what we're going to discuss, how can that kind of be useful in our day-to-day life or in our conversations that we as Christians are having? I find it useful when I'm having conversations with somebody about worldview um, topics to kind of have an understanding about consciousness as a way of helping me to kind of think about some questions that I might ask to kind of stir the conversation around Uh, Again, like, how do we come to be? So, like, just for example, um, kind of one idea about how we came to be is that there are atoms that come into a certain configuration. And then when they come into that configuration, that configuration is you. And so we can explain your origin in terms of the atoms coming into a a certain configuration. Well, then I I like to ask questions about um, how you can know anything, how you can even know you're having an experience yeah. of anything outside. And I think those questions lead to some insights that can then challenge this frame that um, this kind of materialist, this is one version of a materialist frame where what you are just is a configuration of, of atoms. And then by challenging that, I think it does open up some some really interesting conversations that, that I've had with friends and, and it's not the kind of conversation for me, my style is not like I have this destination or an agenda and I'm going to lead you there by trapping you with logic and reason, but rather that we can kind of look at some things together and I don't have really like any fear, if I could put it this way, talking with anybody about any of these worldview questions because, um, because these questions about consciousness, I think, open up insights that can help all of us learn from each other. So that, I think, is one practical use, is just having a conversation over a topic of mutual interest. You know, who are we, how we came to be? People gravitate toward that. They want to talk about that. Yeah. Now, now what you said there kind of springs two thoughts into my mind. Um, And and the first one is this, is Jay Werner Wallace will say, uh, he has said, one of the best arguments for God's existence is the fact that you can make an argument. Um, now you maybe don't agree. I don't know if you agree that that's the best argument, but but kind of is that kind of what you're getting at too? Is the fact that we are conscious, rational thinking beings is best explained by the existence of God? And if we live in kind of an, an atheistic, not, no God universe where we're just purely physical creatures, why would we expect us to be able to rationally make an argument? So the fact that we're thinking about what we're talking about is good reason to believe that there's a God. That is so interesting. And I mean, I, I kind of love that idea. Uh, it's something that I've, I've kind of toyed with myself as well. I'd want to slow it down carefully, but but yeah, there, there's something about the ability to even make an argument that presupposes stuff that is already very significant. Like just to illustrate this, there's a, a philosopher of science um, named Alexander Rosenberg, and he's got a book called An Atheist's Guide um, to Reality, Okay. And in that book, he makes an argument that that the nature of the physical world is such that it can't um, be about things. So if you have, like, just to kind of illustrate this, if you have some rocks, let's say, those rocks aren't about the sky. 
they're not about anything. They're not about themselves. They're just aboutness doesn't really apply to rocks. Yeah. And what Rosenberg says about rocks, um, he says applies to actually every piece of matter. No piece of matter is about anything. Okay. But an argument is built up out of things that we might call propositions that are about things. So if you make an argument, let's say, against the existence of God, that argument, the very nature of the argument, is built up out of these, these thought sequences. Um, and according to Alexander Rosenberg, those things couldn't even exist hmm. if fundamental reality is material and mindless. Yeah. And since he thinks fundamental reality is material and mindless, he ends up arguing against the existence of thoughts, which is why in my book I actually spend some time arguing for the existence of thoughts. Yeah. So I don't even take that for granted in the book. Um, but yeah, I love that, that we, we take for granted, right? Like that we can have a conversation, that we can have an argument, that we can have a reasonable discussion, that we can use reason and logic to make arguments for various conclusions. But the very ability to do those things is already so significant. Like yeah. how in the world do we exist in a reality where arguments can exist? Right? Yeah. Like arguments out of the particles, arguments arise. That That's already very, very striking, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, oh, I, sh- I, I shared one of the quotes from your book, uh, kind of what you just discussed right there on Twitter, uh, where you, you don't just kind of assume these things, but you kind of argue for arguments and reason. And there's a, the one that you said, if we take skepticism of reason too far, we're risking cutting off the very branch in which we stand. Everything goes dark and we turn off the light of reason entirely. After all, it takes reason to provide reasons to doubt your reason. <laughs> and then, so it's like, it's so true. It's like these self-defeating things of like, you have to have this uh, intentionality or aboutness or thought to even kind of present these arguments to be able to think about God and whether or not he even exists to begin with. If I could just add right here, in, in that paragraph there was not me patronizing the audience. It was motivated by people writing me questions about how they could trust their reason. Yeah. And part of this was actually in response to the previous book, How Reason Can Lead to God. And some people were kind of wondering like, well, how can you trust anything that's reason points to like if reason points to one plus one equals two how do you know that's even true how can you trust even that yeah and i think that sometimes when reason is used to reach certain conclusions people will have questions about even the utility of reason itself so i did want to take some time to yeah argue for the power of reason and um ultimately i think that it comes from a kind of inner awareness that you have uh, you have a faculty being aware of certain lines of reason in your mind. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good. So the, the second thing that kind of jumped into my mind as you were talking about that is, is uh, one of my intellectual heroes, uh, John Lennox, uh, in a conversation with Richard Dawkins, right? Where he has this kind of comeback where he, he talks about this idea of like, if, if you are purely just a brain and this brain is the product of an unguided natural process of evolution, you know, why trust it? And, and so you brought up this kind of comment in, in your first response of this idea of kind of how could we actually know something or trust something or not only have reasons, but then believe that it's reliable kind of a trusted knowledge. And so what, how do we have this kind of worldview difference maybe in this topic of, of why is consciousness uh, necessary to trust what we know? Yeah, this is so good. So here it's not even just thoughts that exist, but it's thoughts that are rational, thoughts that include knowledge, right? And, and if you imagine that it's like mindless particles, I think it's helpful to maybe use some concrete examples here. So here's some bits of reality. 
And these bits of reality are mindless pieces of reality. You know, this little pink thing doesn't have a mind. This green thing doesn't have a mind. These are just toys I borrowed from my kids. So they don't have a mind. And if they're knocking into each other, and let's just stipulate that when they hit each other in just a certain way, a thought emerges. So maybe there's the thought that spaghetti is good. You know, when these things hit each other, spaghetti is good. That thought just emerges. Well, if these are mindless bits of reality, then the basis of any thought that emerges is not going to be a rational basis. I should make this argument in the book that rationality itself is born not in mindlessness, but in mind. So this is why I think you actually need a, a mind or some kind of realm of consciousness for rational thoughts to even possibly exist in the first place. I don't think you can take mindless Legos, smash them together or stack them, or mindless chains of carbon atoms in a brain and organize them in a certain way so that rational thoughts emerge unless, and there's an important unless here, there's already a mind present. Because I think if there's already a mind present, then the chains of carbon atoms in a brain might be able to affect what's already there if it's doing it in cooperation with a rational faculty. It's sort of like um, a river that that is running through some rocks. And let's say the rocks represent material atoms in a brain and the river represents um, consciousness, let's say. The material atoms in the brain are able to affect an already existing consciousness. But I don't think the river could emerge out of rocks all on its own. If there were just rocks with an empty riverbed, there's going to be no river that's going to appear because rocks are the wrong ingredients for making the river. And in the same way, I think that rational thoughts are born in the river of consciousness and that the atoms or the rocks uh, of the molecules in the brain, they're not the right materials to make rational thoughts all on their own. They affect what's already there. They don't make consciousness itself. Does that make sense? I know we're now deep in. No, in absolutely. Here. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm thinking like all this stuff. I'm like, no, that's supposed to be in the conclusion. You know, this is <laughs> but it's we'll like, yeah. Uh, but here's where maybe I'm thinking taking a step back is, is mm-hmm. how many people really are out there. I feel like there's a lot of people listening that might say, well, of course we have a mind. Of course we're conscious. Like who doubts that? Uh, and so kind of are there people out there that are doubting these things? Like we are conscious, rational creatures with a mind. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in graduate school, this is when I began to study consciousness in quite some depth. I ended up taking about seven different courses in the philosophy of mind. Um, one of them by J.P. Moreland. Actually, I think it was two by J.P. Moreland. Uh, he kind of helped introduce me to the field. He did such a marvelous job because then I started taking courses by other philosophers um, Jaguan Kim, kind of a famous philosopher of mine. Robert Hanna, also ex, uh, an expert philosopher of mine. Uh, Michael Tooley uh, took a course on perception. And it, um, Alvin Plantinga ended up taking a course with him. Many others. Uh, and, and all of them, I, I felt kind of prepared because of J.P. Moreland's classes, at the way he sort of covered the topics, kind of prepared me for all these other ones. But what I discovered is just what you said, was that there are a number of philosophers who've been motivated to think that actually, there isn't any first-person conscious experience. Um, that's not actually real. Um, there are atoms in a brain, and those atoms have positions in space, and, we, and they also have functional properties where if they go into one position, that can lead to another position. 
and there's a, a functioning of the uh, pieces of the brain. But that sort of feeling of excitement, that feeling of love, um, that's not really there. And let me just clarify, these philosophers aren't saying that the feeling of love just is a chemical reaction in the brain. They're not reducing the mind to material states. They're actually saying that you can't reduce the mind to material states, but that material states are what actually exists fundamentally. And since you can't reduce the mind to the material states, um, the mind doesn't actually exist. This is why I mentioned Alexander Rosenberg. He, he's a, an eliminativist about thoughts. Thoughts don't actually exist. Other philosophers, um, Paul Churchland, Patricia Churchland, for example, they've called into question a certain qualitative aspect of consciousness, sort of like what it's like to smell coffee, where that what it's like to smell coffee is something that you have access to when you're smelling the coffee in kind of a private way that the public doesn't have access to when they're looking at your brain. We don't have public access to your internal private experiences. And the Churchlands, they'd say that you don't find those private experiences in the brain. And so they're, they, they don't actually exist. So these are called eliminativists. They eliminate these aspects of, of the mind, of consciousness. And I was intrigued by this when I got into graduate school taking these courses, how many philosophers are eliminativists? Now, this is not a majority view, but there's a surprising number of philosophers who move in this direction. And many of them, what they would say is, I would say there's maybe two roads that lead to this kind of eliminativism. One road is reflection on the hard problem of explaining how consciousness could exist in principle in terms of the mindless bits of reality. This is where Alexander Rosenberg, I mean, he's very explicit about this. He says, a complete physical description of matter doesn't include real aboutness of thoughts. doesn't include that. So we can't actually explain, he thinks, we can't explain the emergence of thoughts in terms of mindless matter. And so he's going to eliminate um, the existence of thoughts. Another kind of reason, I think, that points towards eliminativism, I think this might be a more fundamental reason, has to do with a different theory of how you get knowledge. That the way that we get knowledge is through kind of what works. Uh, well, let me back up and clarify. Science works. Science gives us technology. So science gives us real knowledge. And I'm talking about empirical science where we're testing things in the laboratory, using our in instruments, using our eyes to make observations and recording our observations. And the empirical science by itself doesn't actually find uh, consciousness, right? Like th there's no looking at a brain and looking at the molecules in the brain that's going to give you sort of what it is like to be the person with that brain, this sort of inner feeling. Like, for example, if, if you have an image of a purple dragon in your mind and you're rotating that image in your mind and you want to demonstrate your powers to yourself, if you can get the image to rotate counterclockwise and then clockwise, sort of by the force of your will, you can try this at home, you know, just like close your eyes, get the images and rotate them. The idea here is that science, empirical science that looks in the brains will only find uh, you know, gray matter, like functioning axons that may be correlated with imagery in somebody's mind, but you're not actually going to find the imagery without somebody reporting that they're having images in their mind. And so that's a kind of a second reason for, for the eliminativist view is from um, sort of uh, using those empirical tools and not finding consciousness merely through empirical brain science. Yeah, no, that's helpful. So yes, and then these are real. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I would show videos uh, to my high schoolers as we would kind of talk about secular understanding of, of, um, of philosophy and kind of uh, those who hold to a materialist or kind of a naturalist that there's a material, only the material universe exists. You know, how do we yeah. then explain consciousness and a mind if that's not a, a material physical thing? And so you have, for example, you know, famous, you know, new atheist Daniel Dennett uh, has a video on YouTube where he talks about, you know, he goes consciousness, whatever that is, uh, you know, everyone thinks it's so magical, magical, magical that, you know, that we have to make room for it by splitting the universe into two different things, you know, physical, non-physical substances. And he goes, but it's really just your brain tricking you. It's just a bunch of bag of tricks in your brain. Um, and it's just magic. And so, uh, you know, there, these ideas are kind of out there. What's up? It's an illusion. It, it's yeah. not really even there. It's just an illusion. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe the, the first question now, even coming back that maybe I should have started with earlier is, um, you know, he, I, I've had this before because I had another conversation with an atheist on YouTube where it's just like, well, we don't even know what consciousness is. And so how can you try to kind of give an account for it? And even Daniel Dennis says consciousness, whatever that is. Uh, so how would you, you know, if we're trying to talk about the emergence of consciousness and, and kind of how we are get consciousness and where it came from, how would you define consciousness? So consciousness is very hard to define because I think we recognize it by being conscious, but we don't really define it in other terms. Uh, it's one of these kind of basic concepts. If, if I'm conscious of a thought, um, I, can, I can sort of recognize that consciousness. Um, if I want to use other words to define consciousness, I might say consciousness is an experience of awareness. So if I'm conscious of a thought, then I'm having an experience of awareness of the thought. Um, but then you could ask me, well, what, do I, what do I mean by an experience of awareness? Again, I think that this is just a very basic concept. You know it by having an experience. So that's how I think of consciousness. It's something that you can know uh, immediately from the first person perspective. When you're having experiences, when you're having thoughts and feelings, all those things occur within um, consciousness, within your experience of awareness of those things. So would it kind of be like, you know, speaking of JP Moreland, you know, he talks about different types of knowledge. Uh, would this kind of be, you're, you're grounding this in kind of a knowledge of acquaintance, like you have an acquaintance with your experience. Yeah. And so you can say, you know, it, even if I can't explain it very well, like I, I, I just know it because I've experienced it. Absolutely. Yeah. Knowledge by direct acquaintance with it. And that is so important because you don't have to check your brain to know if you're feeling happy. You can be directly acquainted with the feeling of happiness. Yeah. So I like how you put that. Good. So now kind of jumping into kind of how the book is laid out, right? So you, you kind of, um, go into this and, and it's like, Hey, I'm going to use these tools of introspection and, and reason and some scientific, you know, evidence and kind of look at kind of the uniqueness of, of persons and kind of how yeah. do we make sense of it? Right. If I can kind of maybe summarize it in that way. And, and I love how you, you kind of do this approach because it's similar kind of what I've tried to do is that we can look at reality that we see certain things about the nature of reality that, that have to have explanations that we have to be able to explain. Um, and so yeah. one of the ones that you talk about, and you mentioned it in an answer just a moment ago is this idea of love. And so this kind of came up, uh, back at the very beginning of my career as a teacher, I had a very staunch atheist student who literally in class kind of hit the desk. I remember one day and said, you will never convince me that atheism is false and Christianity is true. And I said, okay, like, but if you're willing to have a conversation, let's keep chatting, you know, and it's all, you know, let's talk about your questions. And it was actually one day that I asked him the question. I said, so what is, what is love to you? When, mm -hmm. when you look at a girl, your mom or whatever, and you say, I love you, 
what is that? Is it a chemical reaction? Is there something deeper there that you are, are sensing and feeling? Like, what is that? Uh, and that ended up leading into conversations on the nature of the soul and, and these sort of things. And so uh, I'd love to maybe kind of spell that out because that was a conversation I had that maybe others could use of just this idea of kind of like, what is love that we yeah. have this deep understanding of? And then how do we explain that? So how does that kind of fit into what you're addressing here in the book and in our conversation? Yeah, because I think you can know about love through the light of introspection by having that feeling. And you don't have to check, you know, the chemical reactions in your brain. Uh, you could be having a dream and have a feeling of love towards maybe some somebody that you think that is there in your dream. Hey, that's possible. You could have those feelings and you could know about those feelings. The way that you know about them, you know, to go back to the, the elimitivism where if you're using empirical science, looking at brains, with your eyes or with your instruments, um, you're not going to be able to detect just through those instruments, the feeling of love, that feeling. So how do you detect that? In the book there, I do talk about this tool of the light of introspection, which is the tool by which I think you can be directly acquainted with these inner states of consciousness, including the conscious state of loving. So I think it's so important to kind of recognize that there are models of the connection between chemical reactions in a brain and loving feelings that don't eliminate the loving feelings and don't reduce and say that the, the feeling just is the same thing as a chemical reaction. In the same way that as you and I are talking, there are pixels on my screen that represent you to me. Hmm. And now those pixels aren't you. Those pixels aren't conscious. But if those pixels go away and there's a malfunction, then I'll have no access to you. So I won't be able to experience your, your uh, expressions of consciousness. Um, so if you think of elimination as saying, you know, there is no you, there's just the pixels. Or reduction is saying that there is a you, but what you actually are, are the pixels. I say both of those are a mistake because there's something else. There's not just the pixels that I'm seeing right now with my eyes. But there's also somebody behind those pixels. And actually, my best evidence for that is, uh, I mean, I, I can make an inference. Probably there's somebody behind the pixels. Uh, I'm thinking you're probably real and you're not just the pixels on my screen. But my best evidence for that is actually my own experience of myself being different from pixels on a screen. And so then now I infer that, you know, you're by analogy, you know, you're probably, um, there's a similarity there. Um, and so the point here is that I love your argument from love because it highlights this difference that you can access through introspective awareness of your experience between the feeling and the chemical reaction. The feeling and the chemical reaction are connected just as your existence right now and you're talking to me is connected to the pixels I'm seeing, um, but they're not the same thing. Yeah. Now, so then what is it about those feelings then Um you know, and you've kind of already said this a little bit, but this idea of what you're arguing for here in the book in each of these points is that, um, and maybe you can kind of spell this out a little bit too, of, of just like when you start to look at the nature of persons, you, you really have to dig down to the, the base level, the, 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 the grounding of kind of the nature yeah. of reality itself. So maybe if you can kind of spell that out and kind of how each one of these points that we're going to kind of talk through and how feelings is one of those of how it kind of brings us back down to that kind of base level where it's not explained by these higher level things. So the book divides into two parts. The first part is about the nature of you 
And the second part is about the the origin, or you might say the explanation of you. Yeah. So, you know, what makes you? And I take a lot of time in that first part first, because um, if we can get an understanding that what you are includes something that can have feelings, a whole I've got a whole chapter just on feelings, and then also something that can have thoughts, a whole chapter just on thoughts, something that can perceive and to know things, I've got a yeah. whole chapter just on that. And if we can understand that those aspects of you, your feelings, your thinking, your perceiving, none of those things are reducible to mindless bits organized into a brain. The brain facilitates thinking, feeling, intending, but it isn't um, what those things are. Okay, Then we can move on to the second phase of trying to understand, okay, well, then what explains how there's any thinking and feeling uh, and intending and perceiving in the first place? And then that does, as, as you say, you know, brings us back to the more foundational questions about the nature of reality. Um, I, I make the argument in the second part of the book from many different angles that it's impossible in principle to construct a feeling of love purely out of dust in the air. You can't take dust in the air and organize it so that it is a feeling of love. Even if you organize it so it looks like a brain or even functions like a brain, it won't itself be a feeling. Now, it might facilitate feelings. It might cause feelings. I mean, look, if if my wife is sweeping up some dust uh, and I see that she's sweeping up the dust, I can might have some feelings about that. <laughs> so I do want to emphasize that there can be a causal connection between existing conscious beings and changes in the material world. Um, but I think if we can really appreciate that there's more to us than molecules in motion per the first part of the book, and I take some some work drawing that out, but it's, it's related to your point about love, you know, like what is love to you? Then we can start looking at the second part, which is, well, what could possibly turn into love? You yeah. know, can you take Legos and throw them together to make love? Can you take chains of carbon atoms and organize them in just the right way so that now love um, exists? And that's an important question. And, and I don't want to kind of say lightly that the answer is just obvious and immediate. I actually take, in my own journey, it wasn't obvious or immediate. Before I took those courses in the philosophy of mind, I thought maybe consciousness just came out of a complex brain. And it wasn't until yeah. I began going deeper into the field that I began to appreciate that hard problem of explaining consciousness. And not just the hard problems, lots of different problems that add up to um, kind of my present view, which yeah. is that it takes more than just mindless matter to make love. Yeah. Now, what about this person who says, um, you know, that that love or or that experience is, is is the combination of physical things, just like, you know, wetness is the combination of physical properties like H2O. You take hydrogen, oxygen, put it together, you get water. Now it has the property of being wet. Um, you know, yeah. why? Where is that kind of mistaken as far as put the physical stuff together and you get consciousness? So here, I think it's helpful to make some distinctions. Um, distinctions help give us some clarity. So. I think there's a difference between the idea that um, out of some chemicals, we get a new kind of a thing, which we might call wetness, that emerges out of the chemicals, um, H2O, um, uh, that particular um, atomic configuration. So, so the emergence is one idea. Another idea is what we might call reduction, where the wetness just is a certain um, arrangement of atoms. And... I would give it a different analysis for each of those. So in the case of wetness, we also have to think about what we what we mean by wetness. 
is part of what we mean by wetness, like how it feels to us. You know, like if you touch some water, like it feels wet. Because if what we mean by wetness is how it actually feels to us, like it feels wet, then we're actually bringing consciousness into the very question itself. And I would argue that the feeling of wetness is not the same as um, H2O, okay? Because you can actually be conscious of the feeling without being conscious of the underlying cause of the feeling. So the effect is not the same as the cause. It's a different kind of a thing. So that that's kind of one thing I want to say there. But if what you mean by the wetness just is some kind of configuration of atoms, that's literally what you mean. Like wetness is just shorthand for some configuration of atoms. Well, then fine. I've got no problem saying that once the atoms are configured in that way, you get this other property, which we can call wetness. However, it's so important to realize that um, consciousness is a different kind of a thing because mm. unlike H2O, which is outside of my conscious awareness, consciousness can be part of my own conscious awareness. Let me just draw this out. This is so important and I didn't see this. I, I don't think I understood this until after the end of my second class with J.P. Moreland in the philosophy of mind. I, I think that um, it took a little bit of time for the concepts to really come into place because we looked at lots of arguments and then all of a sudden I became like, conscious of my consciousness and when you're conscious of your own consciousness so the way to a way to do this is focus on some things that you're seeing right now so maybe you're seeing some colors and some shapes just kind of focus on them and then take kind of like a mental snapshot of what you're focusing on and then be conscious of your focusing on those things and if you do that then you can put yourself into a state of being conscious of your own consciousness of things. And this gives you this kind of new position to be aware of your own awareness or conscious of your own consciousness. And when you're in that position, you can be aware that consciousness is unlike molecules that are outside of your awareness. Water that's outside of your awareness, you don't know what it is. You don't know what it is by direct acquaintance. That's why you're leaning on inferences to tell you about the nature of the molecular structure uh, because you, you're not directly acquainted with it. But with consciousness, you can be directly consciously acquainted with your own consciousness. And that's going to give you some insight into what it is. That consciousness is not the same thing as that an image of a purple dragon rotating in your mind or a thought that's about something is not the same thing as a collection of particles in motion. Um, in the book, I argue that you can, you can actually directly compare different properties. You can directly compare the experiential property of love with the spatial property of, an, um, of something that you can see. And you can see that there's a difference there. So that, that would be kind of my answer to the H2O um, question is that once we make these distinctions, I think that we can see that there's a relevant difference between... Mm -hmm. You know, water is maybe H2O in a certain sense, okay? But again, H2O is not something we have direct conscious awareness of. Whereas our own consciousness, we the lights are on. We have conscious awareness of things within our own consciousness, including consciousness itself. Yeah. And that allows us to directly see into some of its aspects and see that they're different than certain uh, mindless material aspects outside yeah. of consciousness. 
No, that's that's good. That's so helpful. Um, now, a question came in for you from the Faithiest Atheist, uh, where he says this. He says, uh, what if scientists one day do show how to make love from dust? Would that really have any negative effect on love? It would still be amazing. It would still be awesome. And, and, I, and I love this guy. I know who he is. He's one of my uh, friends whom I just appreciate so much. And I, I do think that um, what we're saying here doesn't even, um, it kind of leaves open the significance of love. So there's maybe three things I want to distinguish between. One is the idea that uh, we eliminate the feeling of love, like there is no love. So let's push that theory of elimination off the table. And then the ne- next thing is reduction, that what love is, is chemical reactions in the brain. I make the argument through a direct comparison test that there are properties of love that you can be aware of and conscious of that aren't actually um, the same as certain properties in the brain. So let's say we roll away the reduction. That leaves on the table the idea that um, he's suggesting that maybe we could have certain brain states that generate the experience of love. And, um, and, and love would certainly still be very significant and special uh, as long as it's actually real. And it is what it seems to be, at least in part, from the first-person experience. Um, I would just completely agree with that. I think it's a further question what it takes to build love. Um, This is why in the second part of my book, I make an argument that um, through logical analysis of the nature of love itself and logical analysis of the nature of mindless um, states of matter, that there's actually an explanatory gap between the two that for various reasons can't be bridged. Uh, one of the reasons has to do with um, this problem of agency. So I, I make the argument that you as an agent have causal powers to make a difference in the world by forming certain intentions. And that if instead you're constructed merely out of mindless things, then those mindless things would, would effectively be string pullers, they'd be puppet masters, and you'd be, a, you'd be uh, a puppet of mindless particles. That in order for you to actually exist and actually have mental powers, um, you have to be not built purely out of the mindless dust of reality. You have to be another kind of thing. And I think love is the same sort of thing that love, and again, this takes a little bit of work to make the argument, but that love is not the kind of thing that could be in principle produced. That if scientists build robots that claim to have the feelings of love, um, all that's going on there is that the robots are functioning as if they're having the feeling of love. They're not actually having that internal feeling of love or something even crazier is happening, which is that we've opened up portals to already existing conscious beings beyond the realms who are now invading those technologies and manifesting themselves. (laughs) So I have to open up that possibility because if sperm and egg can come together to open up portals for souls to enter into our world, maybe we could build a, a computer that, is oriented in just the right way and conscious beings are now able to enter into that, um, not spatially in, but they can now control it somehow by the rules of reality. So (laughs) this is beyond my understanding, but I'm just saying, you know, as a philosopher, I'm going to leave all possibilities uh, open that I can. 
Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And that answer kind of led to two questions I, I had wanted to ask. One came in uh, uh, earlier on Facebook, um, but you talked about the sperm and they coming together and consciousness coming in. Um, and the cr- question came in for you. Are you a creationist for the nature of, of the soul or consciousness or are you traditionist? Um, traditionist. Oh, that's a beautiful word. Wow. This is taking me all the way back to those grad school days. Yeah. <laughs> that's the idea that the souls kind of come from the other soul. So, yeah. so my wife and I, we have souls or our souls. And then our souls um, contribute to the uh, existence of, of a new being versus the creationist idea that, you know, let's say God just sort of directly creates um, the souls. And, uh, you know, I would say that kind of my, my current working model that I arrived at kind of through my work in this book, uh, my view updated as I was doing the research for the book, is that um, all of us are so very deeply connected that there's really only one kind of substance that could make us. Um, and it is actually um, the foundational substance. Uh, we could call this God's substance. And that we're made out of that substance, that we, we couldn't really be made in any other way. Uh, if that's right, then my view would be, perhaps you could classify it as a kind of traditionary view. I hadn't really kind of thought about it in these terms. Um, so I'd probably want to reflect again on this, but that... Um, that our own souls then can also, being out of that same substance, contribute to um, new versions of that substance. Um, but it's not a new kind of substance that is is created. Um, it's created out of the original stuff of reality, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that's helpful. Now, the, okay, so the other thing you mentioned is, is this idea of kind of just being a puppet master. If, if, if what you do is just being controlled by chemicals and matter, uh, then then do you really have choice? And you have a whole chapter on this as well of kind yes. of the, the will and, and our free will. Uh, I personally think that this is a, a huge reason why I'm not uh, a physicalist or materialist, because I do believe that as pure physicalism or materialism, that only the physical world exists and we are just purely physical beings, then that would lead to determinism, meaning that we have no free will and that everything that we do is determined or caused by brain states, mental states in which we didn't choose. Um, And when you use introspection, like you talk here in your book, there really is this understanding, this knowledge that I do make free will choices. And so it leads me to another kind of question I had is that there's an interview with uh, Sam Harris on the Joe Rogan podcast, where he talks about this understanding of like, you think you have free will? Like, no, you don't. Like you are just the product of your brain and your brain is a product of an evolutionary process that you didn't choose. You didn't pick, you didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick anything. It's all determined. And then he says, um, you know, raise your right hand, raise your left hand. You didn't pick which hand you raised. It was caused by brain states. Now, then he goes on a little bit further and I maybe am running out of time and I don't want to spend a lot of time here on this. I have talked to your colleague at APU, um, Ritu Gutta on neuroscience and the soul uh, before. Um, But I would love your thoughts really quick because there's other issues I want to get to and I'm running out of time. But but this idea of his reasoning for it is that when you look at fMRIs, you see that there's brain activity before the person supposedly is consciously aware of what they're choosing. Therefore, his conclusion is, you know, I think that the number is like four seconds or something that they can see or or whatever it is. his conclusion then is that it is brain states that are controlling you. Then you become consciously aware of what your brain has done. Um, what would kind of be your thoughts on that? So very briefly in my book, I talk about the, the latest research um, on this topic. And what I find is very strong empirical evidence that um, there is what I would call two-way causal interaction between brain activity and mental activity. And that there are things that you can do in your mind that are absolutely not predicted by any um, brain activity that we can measure or have measured 
but instead that these mental activities actually affect the brain activity in measurable ways. Um, there's an article that talks about measuring free will through um, kind of the latest research into brain science. And you got to kind of just look, dig into the science to investigate this for yourself. Um, what, what I kind of say in that chapter, and I'm, I don't, you know, in, in the attempt to be brief, I don't want to kind of rush through so many details. I'd rather say kind of a few things well than just too many things. Um, so I guess two things I just want to highlight. One well, is this that, is going to lead into the yeah. next thing I want to do. Well, how you're answering is kind of leading into the next part I want to talk about. So if you want to take okay. some time and kind of parse it out, that's, that's good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So just the, the two things here is um, you, you can investigate your powers through brain science. And I think the science is in many respects open on the question. I do think there's significant evidence that your mental life affects uh, your brain, that you there are meditations that you can do. There are um, gratitude practices that you can direct um, that makes a difference. Just today, I was at the park with my kids and we got tired and we all laid on the grass and it was bright. So I closed my eyes and I got an image in my mind and I started to intentionally rotate it clockwise. And then just to test my powers, I thought, well, let me see if I can get it to go the other way, counterclockwise. And, and I was able to do that. Um, according to the recent science that I'm reading, it looks like this kind of willful activity to rotate images and to do things in your mind is having an impact in the brain. So the brain is not just predicting all of this. I'm aware of the Libet study and more recent studies, um, but none of those studies, I think, show that the causal interaction is just from brain to mind. I think there's two-way interaction. And then the second um, point here is that even though I think the science is kind of open on this, um, I think that you can actually use the introspective awareness to become self-aware of yourself making actions. And boy, I, I just don't know how to actually say this briefly. If, if I may just draw this out just a little more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's, it's so important. Um, I think it was actually in JP Moreland's class that the, he asked the class, like, how do you know which body in the room is your body? It's kind of a silly, kind of a strange <laughs> question. It's like a philosopher's question. Like, how do you know which body right. in the room is your, your body? And then you start thinking about it. It's like, well, it's the one I can control. Well, how do you know which one you can control? Well, it's the one that, you know, I'm aware of myself trying to move my arm and then my arm moves and stuff. And, and it's like, well, but how do you know which thoughts and feelings are yours? How do you know which mental states are yours? And ultimately, the question points back to the power to be aware of yourself having certain thoughts and having certain bodily sensations. That in order to even know which body in the room is your body, that implicitly assumes the power of self-awareness. Because with the power, without that power, all you're aware of is just bodies and mental states, but you don't know which one is your body. You have to be aware of yourself somehow. And I think that this self-awareness is actually the light that allows you to be directly acquainted and consciously aware from the inside of yourself doing things, of yourself do, uh, making choices. And I think this is actually powerful evidence um, that first, that you're real, and second, that you actually can do things, um, that you're not just a puppet of other things. You can be aware of yourself making choices. And I do think the empirical science supports this. Um, I think it's maybe a bit early to kind of be decisive about that. I certainly wouldn't be decisive saying science shows you don't have free will. I think, it, if anything, it's exactly the opposite. But I think the more clear light to me is a sort of introspective access to my own power to make choices. Yeah. That's so helpful. So now, so going off that then, um, 
one of the pushbacks, right, that, that, that people are going to get if they say, no, I believe I, I, I'm a soul uh, and or I'm conscious, uh, the, often the pushback then is this, this interaction problem. Then, then how does the soul or consciousness interact with the body? So when you say, I am aware that I am raising my hands and doing these things, um, how does a non-physical substance or whatever you want to call it, this, this soul, how does a soul control and animate a body? And so you have this whole section here and I'm going to, you know, and we don't have, again, a ton of time. And so encourage people to get yeah. the book. It's, it's a great book. It's super uh, deep and, and you got to kind of read slowly in a sense, uh, but it's so good because it's answering a lot of these questions that at least I'm coming up uh, uh, facing a lot. And so uh, I'd love for you to maybe just take a little some time and, 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 yeah. and parse out what is the interaction problem? If so Someone is going to hold to that we are kind of body and soul. Uh, and then if you can, in the short amount of time uh, that we have left, <laughs> kind of give your understanding or explanation of it, your answer to it. Yeah. it's. I, I love this question because it, it's interesting how sometimes or oftentimes I would say um, questions that are raised against a certain view. And in this view, in, in this case, it's the view that you're something more than just molecules in motion. Uh, we could use the word soul to just pick out you. Um, where what you are is what you are aware of in self-awareness, where that's not going to be reduced to or analyzed in terms of molecules in motion. So we'll just kind of stipulate, you know, the soul just is whatever you are, so long as what you are is more than just molecules in motion. And so sometimes people will raise this question like, well, if, if there's more to you than just molecules in motion, then that leads to this kind of interaction problem. How can uh, molecules in motion or material states interact with mental states, if these belong to two different categories. Uh, What's interesting to me is I actually think that this question actually poses a problem for a purely uh, mindless first theory of reality, where material states are the foundational states, and then these material foundational states somehow give rise to a new category of thing and then interacts with it. I think this interaction problem actually is is kind of more a problem for the mindless first theory of reality because it is kind of a category problem. How do you go from the sort of mindless chemical reactions to real conscious experience where now that real conscious experience can actually cause chemical reactions? How how does that work if the mindless is the foundational? But if you flip the picture, and this was actually something that in the course of my research for this book and just thinking about uh, what I was reading and, and, and writing the book, my own view kind of got updated because I think that I used to sort of have this model where there's this sort of foundational consciousness, maybe God's consciousness. And then this consciousness sort of takes material stuff and maybe adds consciousnesses to the material stuff. But I actually really came to realize that you still have this kind of mind-body problem of, well, how, if the mindless matter is pulling the strings on the behavior of the consciousness, even if God somehow sticks consciousness into the beings, how does this consciousness actually have the power to move its legs or move, move the material stuff? And so the view, one of the updates for me was to realize, oh, actually, if my mind comes first in the order of explanation, um, if all mind, if, if I could use this language, if, if mind itself or consciousness itself is prior to the emergence of the material world, then there's a model on which actually I can actually make a difference in the material world, not because matter is sort of permitting me to now move my arms or th- rotate the images in my mind. 
It's rather that I have direct causal power. So I take some time to talk about these direct capacities to, to do certain things, to think, to feel. And these direct um, capacities allow me then to have the, the ability to not be a puppet of the mindless, but instead to flip it around so that uh, mindless states themselves can be produced out of um, conscious states. And just to kind of illustrate this just a little more, because sometimes people say, well, isn't there kind of a reverse construction problem, Josh? If, if Friends have asked me this, like, if, if you can't construct consciousness out of mindless matter, um, how does God construct mindless matter out of his consciousness? You know, isn't that kind of like a reverse problem? Mm. And, and what I want to say is that there's an important asymmetry between these. And that is that we already have direct conscious awareness of things that don't have minds, Okay. So my thoughts in my mind don't have their own mind. The thoughts are in my mind, but they don't have a mind. Mental images in my mind, which have a spatial mental space in them, right? Like if I have a mental image of one thing next to another, even while I'm dreaming, there's a a mental space. That mental space doesn't have its own consciousness. Even if I have the mental shape of a brain in my mind, that mental shape of a brain doesn't have its own consciousness. So we already are familiar with consciousness being able to produce elements within consciousness that don't have um, mental aspects and they don't have their own mind, their own consciousness. And and I I think this is possible because consciousness has some of these basic capacities, including the capacity to generate mental imagery. And so basically to answer the question, I think that um, to solve the mind-body problem, um, it's going to involve understanding what kind of a being you are that you are not fundamentally two kinds of things put together, body and soul, but rather that you are fundamentally one kind of being, one substance that has the power to generate both mental and bodily states and then organize what I call our um, algorithms, which are systems of links between bodily and mental states. And you can do this through the realm of of consciousness. And then this will provide a model for how um, the entire material universe can emerge out of God's mind, because God can just form certain uh, mental states that have mental space within them to, or informational structures to give us the structure of the universe. Um, that would be like a a model that can work. Yeah. So yeah. So I think it is possible to solve the problem if mind comes first rather than the mindless. Yeah. So am I hearing you right? And, and uh, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but uh, you know, we often hear in kind of like a JP Moreland view, right? Is this idea of like substance dualism that we are both body and soul. Um, are, are you positing kind of a more monistic view that we are just one substance or, or would you say your view is still dualism, but maybe in a different way, kind of how am I hearing that? This is a wonderful question. So I would call myself a substance monist. I think there's just one, one basic kind of substance. Um, I actually think my view is is fully in line with J.P. Moreland's view. Um, some of this is just terminology. Um, in fact, I kind of got my view originally from him, and I've been sort of tinkering with it ever since. Um, but I think of there being one sort of fundamental substance, which is understood as the self. And the self is a mental substance or conscious substance. I call it conscious substance. And that's the only kind of substance there is. So everything else I would say is not a, a substance, but um, depends on states of conscious substances. And I think J.P. Moreland's view fits very well with this, actually, because he would say that your body is actually a mode or a state of you. Um, you activate your body. 
I don't know that he would say your body is a substance in its own right. Um, it's dependent on you for its identity and nature. Um, and so, so to me, I'm, I'm happy to say that that's a kind of substance monist view, even though yeah. he might use a language of substance dualism. I think really what he's pointing to is that in addition to the material things, whatever they are, whether you call them substances or not, there's another kind of thing, which is a conscious substance. Yeah. So yeah, actual faith, uh, uh, maybe I wrote this the same time I was asking you, but he said, you know, Dr. Rasmus, it seems like you believe in dualism with modified categories. With modified categories. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now, uh, also based on that, is there, um, is it fair to say like there's, and I think kind of what you're saying, what I'm hearing is that there is this challenge. If you have kind of a more atheist, secular, maybe to be more fair, uh, materialist view of the universe, then you have a matter before mind and you have this big problem of how does matter create mind. But on a Christian view, believing God is an eternal mind, we have mind before matter. And so uh, that is a a simpler or a more logical explanation for where we got our minds from in a mind before matter universe than an atheist view might be more matter before mind. Is that fair kind of summary? Yes, absolutely. Especially because I'm sort of loving your question so much because one of the recent developments in physics is seeing how we could analyze the basic elements of matter in terms of uh, mental aspects. So for example, um, Donald Hoffman and a co-author have an article called Objects of Consciousness, and they provide a kind of rigorous technical analysis of particles in terms of underlying consciousness. Um, Carlo Rovelli, not coming at this from a theistic perspective, um, has argued that the nature of matter is fundamentally uh, informational. And uh, in his book, Reality is Not What It Seems, he kind of asks the question, well, what is information? And he says, well, as a scientist, I'm not going to really tell you what information is, you know, sort of leave that to the philosophers. Um, and I was actually kind of grateful for that. You know, he's not sort of overreaching his field, but he's going to describe it mathematically. And he thinks that the informational structure of matter is prior to the spatial structure of matter. And so there's a way in which if, if information is, let's say, grounded in the thoughts of mind, if mind is fundamental, then we could actually explain and analyze matter in terms of mind. And that provides a simpler theory since um, I would argue that we you can't explain and analyze mind in terms of uh, mindless matter. Um, that's impossible because it's a um, the, the, the first person conscious experiences aren't describable by describing mindless matter. So the explanation yeah. is asymmetric in those directions. Yeah. And speaking of J.P. Moreland's view, he did leave a glowing review on the back that says this is a marvelously accessible book that should be required reading for all of Christian colleges, seminaries and anyone who wants to, who cares about this crucial subject. So he did give a very good review well, of this. If, book you know, if there's anything in here that, you know, you, you don't agree with or approve of, you know, do let me know, because I want to make sure this is. <laughs> I actually said that to a few of my my dear friends in the field, you know, just even friends who have different views, like I want, I want really these insights to be approved by you because that will give me more confidence. So glad for that. 
Yeah. So kind of as we finish, maybe last question, um, kind of trying to kind of bring it back down to kind of a, an understanding of the truth of Christianity, maybe is um, if what you're saying in this book is true, uh, and I think our introspection shows that it is, that we do have feelings and thoughts and we can see things and there's will and value and all this sort of stuff is is true about us as persons. Um, is it fair to say that the, uh, or, or why maybe is, is the best explanation, uh, the Christian worldview, uh, or uh, are there other uh, explanations that maybe are close? Um, or is it really fair to say like, no, like the only explanation is, you know, a worldview in which God exists. So kind of uh, how, how do we uh, understand as we're kind of comparing different approaches to making sense of this, why this really does point strongly maybe to a Christian worldview? I love this question. I've got two things I want to say about it. So first thing is that in this book here that you pointed to, my goal is to cast a wide net and sort of lead readers step-by-step to the view that um, mind or consciousness is a foundational feature of reality. And I elaborate how that could work. Um, Now, this fits very well with with a Christian worldview because on a Christian worldview, um, God's mind would be a foundational aspect of reality. But there's nothing in the arguments that I give in that book that are that specific. So they don't lead us specifically to sort of the Christian narrative of reality. And that leads actually to my second thought, which I think um, I kind of appreciate this as one who likes to build bridges between people from different cultures. Before our time uh, together here, I was just on a podcast with a Muslim uh, philosopher, actually not, not a philosopher. I mean, he was into technology and he had me had me on his um, channel to talk about consciousness, the same topic. And he was loving the material and the argument um, through and through all the way to the conclusions because mm. um, it would support uh, that mind first theory of reality, which, you know, Islam would also recognize. In fact, I'd say like uh, all the major spiritual traditions would have a version of it that would um, kind of emphasize the primacy of, of the mind or the spirit that, you know, this human form that we're taking, the material physical world is not the fundamental world. There's a transcendent um, spiritual world. And I think that it's actually very valuable to kind of note this, let's say, common ground across different cultures. Um, Now, could one build upon this to get a more specific vision of of fundamental reality? Well, I think that that's going to involve additional data sets um, than what I offer just merely from analyzing consciousness. Yeah. So it does, I think, kind of point to some kind of mind first theory of reality. Yeah. So it points maybe towards maybe, maybe if I can say a theism uh, and is a strong argument for theism versus an atheism. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, hey, uh, we are out of time. This has been so fascinating. But thank you so much for taking the time and and chatting with us about your work, uh, your book, and uh, answering all of my questions and curiosities as I was reading oh, your yeah. book. <laughs> oh, Actually, we barely scratched the surface on everything I was wondering about. So maybe oh, we'll have to I do know. another part. I feel like this has just been so much fun. It's like hard to to have it end. I mean, because there's just so much here, and uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. You know, I, I feel like. I, we can't overemphasize, I think, the significance of the familiarity of our own conscious selves. Um, it's familiar, but it's not insignificant. Yeah. And I think the very existence of ourselves does point to a foundational reality that is is, is quite um, profound, Yeah. if I can use that word. Wow. Well, thank you so much for taking the time.
Thank you. All right, everybody. I hope that you had as much fun as we just did having that conversation. Again, there is the book, Who Are You Really? Joshua Rasmussen. Go check it out. It is fascinating. Also coming up on the show in the next coming weeks, I haven't put it on the calendar because I haven't been locked in exactly, but I have conversations in the works on how on Mormonism and evangelizing to Mormonism, on how science, uh, does it disprove miracles, uh, conversations on um, how to be winsome in our persuasion, as well as the argument from desire, argument for God from desire. So these are conversations that are coming up in the next few weeks. You can also be praying for me as all of my doctoral research is due on Tuesday. So I have like five days to finish writing my Theology of the Body Applied to Transgenderism. So a lot of stuff coming up here in the next few days for me, as well as future interviews that will be coming in the pipeline. So with that, there's going to be a ton of other conversations you can click on over here to help you continue to think well about the Christian faith and your cultural engagement. And then uh, be equipped to go out and have these sort of conversations. So I hope this was an encouragement to you. If it was, like it, share it, uh, do whatever you want to do to kind of get that message out there. And I appreciate it. And I've just enjoyed being able to have this conversation and bring it to you today. So with that, continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. See you next time, everybody. to follow your